Our scripture today is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we re- he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to page 1018 of the few Bibles that are in front of you. If you've got a Bible with you, be sure to have it open here to 2 Peter as we continue our series. Uh, As you notice, I'm sure as you heard it read, the theme throughout this passage is the role of God's Word uh, when it comes to remembering, remembering key truths. And so, you know, the question we need to ask is, what was Peter concerned that they were going to forget? Was it just information, you know, data? He was worried about them losing, and so he wanted to be reminding them of that kind of stuff. And, you know, of course, Peter was concerned that they remember the things that he had said, but it wasn't so much data loss, if you will, that Peter was ultimately concerned about as much as it was mission drift. See, mission drift at the uh, organizational level all the time, the original convictions and values that led to the founding of the organization fade away over time, if not constantly being brought to mind. That's, that's mission drift. Peter Greer and Chris Horse wrote about it in their book, Mission Drift, The Unspoken Crisis Facing Leaders, Charities, and Churches. They give the example of Harvard University. Harvard, which had as its original mission to prepare men for ministry by ensuring that they were plainly instructed and considered well that the main end of their life and studies was to know God and Jesus Christ. That was Harvard. If you look at a diploma today from Harvard, it still says in Latin, truth for Christ and the church, but that hasn't been Harvard's mission for a while. In fact, just 80 years after the founding of Harvard, a group of pastors in New England realized that Harvard was starting to drift off mission, and so they founded another college where Harvard's model was Veritas, right, truth. This school's motto was light and truth. That school? Yale, where even the divinity school has gone dark. It's mission drift. The organization, the original convictions and values of the organization 
fade over time, if not constantly being brought to the fore. It happens in big companies. It happens in individuals. It happens in the human heart. It can happen to any one of us. We drift from our mission. We don't mentally forget that Christ is Lord, right? We just don't set him apart as such in our day-to-day lives. We don't mentally forget that Jesus Christ will one day return, but day-to-day it sure looks like we're living more for heaven on earth than we are for the heaven that is to come. And then, imperceptibly, over time, we drift off mission. That's what concerned Peter about these people to whom he's writing. They had convictions that were grounded in the truth they had been taught, among which were things like Jesus Christ is the very Son of God. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. He will one day return in glory. They, they had been taught the very values that would reinforce and give expression to their convictions Values that had largely to do with setting Christ apart as Lord and living under his lordship in every area of their lives while looking in eager expectation for his return. The question is, what will keep them from drifting off course? What will keep us from drifting off course? And the answer that Peter gives, of course, is the Bible. Knowing, believing, submitting to the Word of God. It's the only way to keep us from drifting. So in this passage, Peter reinforces three key truths that we need to remember about God's Word in order to keep from drifting off mission. First, the centrality of God's Word. Second, the reliability of God's Word. And then third, the authority of God's Word. So centrality, reliability, authority, First, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we give you thanks. You've preserved it for us down to this very day. We so often take that for granted. And so we pause just to give you thanks for the great wonder that it is that we hold in our hands in a, in a language that we can comprehend. Uh, one, perhaps for many of us, multiple copies of your word. And we thank you for this portion of it and for the way in which it calls us to remember, to remember things that are of eternal significance, to remember things that will keep us from drifting off mission, and in particular, to remember the key things that are true about your word, that that might not take place. We pray that you would, by your spirit, be working this morning. We recognize that apart from the work of your spirit, your word are just words on a page unless you make us alive to the power that is there. And so we pray that your spirit would be moving, that, that your spirit would be blowing through our lives and, and through this room so that as your word is faithfully proclaimed, as your word is read, its truth will take root in our hearts. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, the centrality of God's word. You see it in verses 12 through 15, and then again at the beginning of verse 19, I want you to see some key words in verses 12 through 15. First, that word therefore, right at the beginning of verse 12. Therefore, in other words, in light of everything Peter says here, in light of everything I've said in the first 11 verses of my letter to you, your foundation of grace, 
that we, we talked about this last week, this, this foundation of grace that's been laid for you upon which you build, the, the growing faith that, that you're called to, to work out in your day-to-day life, faith that is itself a gift from God, this need to, to confirm your calling and election in order to have certainty concerning your entrance into glory and the, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In light of all these things, Peter says what he says here in verses 12 through 21. And then take a look at this word always, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Jump down to verse 15. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And of course, there's that word remind or recall that you see all the way throughout the passage. Three times, right? Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort after my departure to ensure that you may be able at any time to recall or to remember these things. It's important stuff. And it's so easy for us to lose sight of these things. Again, it's not so much that we necessarily mentally forget. It's just that we fail to call them to mind. We lose sight of these things. We lose sight when we're struggling, right, in the midst of, you know, just wrestling with, with that sin that clings so closely in your life. It's easy to forget, to not call these truths to mind concerning that great foundation of grace that's been laid, even the faith that is itself a gift when you're sick. It's easy to to lose sight, to not call to mind these glorious truths about the resurrection and the life to come. It's easy to forget when things are going great. (laughs) It's all kinds of reasons not to call these great and glorious truths to mind. We, again, we haven't forgotten that Jesus is our Savior, but functionally, we live as though all manner of things are where we find salvation. And it's, it's not, again, it's not, a, it's not amnesia. It's a failure to call to mind. It's a losing sight of these things that Peter is saying here. I want to make sure. As long as I've got breath in my lungs, I want you to hear it. I'm going to do everything I can so that after I've gone, you've got it namely this letter, because I don't want you to fail to draw these things to mind. I don't want you to fail to, to keep these things before you. I want you to remember, Peter says. We need the Word of God to remember who we are. You need God's Word in order to remember who you are now that you are a Christian. You are a new creation in Christ You have been adopted into God's family. You've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. You've been freed from the power of sin. You are now walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed for the day of redemption. These are the things that the Word of God says are true concerning you. You need that Word in order to bring it to mind when everything in you and around you would shout out to the contrary at every point. The Word of God is central for remembering who you are. Secondly, the Word of God is central for enduring everything you face. The Word of God is central for enduring everything that you face. Look down at verse 19. 
Peter writes there, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. I'll talk about that first part in a little bit. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What does this mean, this day dawning and the morning star rising in your hearts? The day dawning refers to the return of Christ. It's pointing to that day that will come. Morning star, the morning star refers to Jesus Christ. You can look to Numbers 24, 17 and, and Revelation twenty two sixteen 16 to, to see these references to Jesus Christ as the morning star. The morning star dawning in your hearts, that has to do with that day, when that day comes. Either when we die to go would be with him or if we're still alive when Jesus Christ returns. The impact of the morning star's return, of Jesus Christ's return, what the impact that that will have in us, right? No more sorrow, no more tears, fullness of joy, life everlasting. Until then, Peter tells us, God's word is a light in the darkness. He said it right there in the passage. God's word is a light in a darkness. We would do well to pay attention to it. That's verse 19. Peter says you would do well to pay attention to it. Note his urgency. I, I can't help but hear Peter's heart throughout this passage. You back to John, uh, John chapter 21, and, and you'll read there about Jesus being, Jesus telling Peter what kind of death he will die, right? He, he talks about the fact that Peter his arms, his hands will be stretched out and he'll be led to a place that he doesn't want to go. D.A. Carson in his commentary on John says that is a reference to Peter being crucified. The, that language of hands being stretched out is the same language that was used to describe prisoners who were being crucified, their hands being stretched out in order to carry the cross to the point of crucifixion. And so Peter knew. He didn't know exactly the time, but he could, he could read the times he saw Nero, he saw the persecution, he knew that his time was coming. He had this burden for these people that they adhere to the truth of God's word because that alone would be the light in the midst of their darkness. Do we feel that same sense of urgency? Do we feel that same sense of urgency to be reminded ourselves? Do we feel that same sense of urgency to remind others, to remind our kids, to remind our friends, to remind our parents, to remind one another within this church of the centrality of God's word for remembering who we are and for enduring everything that we face? How do we apply that here at Grace Church? Well, take a look at verse 12. End of verse 12, beginning of verse 13. These two ministries that you've been hearing about over the last two weeks, they're found right there at the end of verse 12 and beginning of verse 13. End of verse 12, Peter talks about them, how they know the truths, the qualities, the things that he's been teaching, and are established in the truth that you have. So what do we do around here to help people get established in the truth? That is our discipleship ministries and our Sunday school for our kids on Sunday morning. Foundations are laid there so that Everyone from little children all the way through up to the oldest of us adults can have this foundation laid upon which we can continue by God's grace to build. And at the beginning of verse 13, you get a picture of what happens in our growth groups that you heard about this morning already. 
in verse 13, I think it right as long as, as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. That's what happens in growth groups. We're stirring one another up by way of reminder concerning the truths that have been entrusted to us in God's Word. God's Word is central. God's Word is central for remembering who you are. God's Word is central when it comes to enduring everything that you face. Secondly, let's look at the reliability of God's Word. You see that in verses 16 through the first part of verse 19, the reliability of God's Word, right? Great, God's Word is, is, is central. It's going to help me as I face everything that I go through in this dark world. How do I know it's true? How do I know it's reliable? Well, we see a picture of that here. Peter tells us. First, Peter tells us the testimony of the apostles confirms the truth of God's Word. He's going to point first to himself, but then we can, we can build out from there to see how the truth of God's Word is established by the apostles. First of all, take a look at verse 16. Peter writes in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so what's he saying there? The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. So Peter says, we've been telling you about this. We've been telling you about these truths that you need to live out in your life. We've been telling you that that all needs to be done in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return in power and in glory. And what Peter says here is, we didn't invent that. Like, that's not a myth that we made up. Why did he feel like he had to say that? It's because the false teachers that we're going to read about in chapter 2 next week were accusing Peter of that very thing. The false teachers were saying, listen, it doesn't matter how you live, right? As long as you put your trust in Jesus, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about this return of Christ in glory to judge. It doesn't need to shape the way in which you live now. And what Peter's saying is, no, actually, it does need to shape the way you live now. And we're not just making all this up. It's not a myth. It's true. And then he points to his own eyewitness testimony. So what, what's happening there? Take a look again back at the passage. End of verse 16 into 17. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. What's he talking about there? He's, he's talking about the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go up the mountain with Jesus. You read about it in Matthew 17, for instance. They see on the mountain Moses, and they see Elijah. And they see Jesus in his full glory, right? Up until then, they'd only known Jesus, the, the son of the carpenter. <laughs> they saw the veil pulled back on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw the Jesus who would return in glory. What John saw in his vision in Revelation chapter 1 and 2, Peter, James, and John saw the reality of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now why, out of everything that Peter saw, everything that Peter saw throughout his life, why did he draw this to the fore? Why did he reference the transfiguration instead of the incarnation or the baptism of Jesus Christ where you heard the same kind of language? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Why the Mount of Transfiguration? Because 
These people to whom he was writing needed to be reminded again and again of that central fact. Jesus Christ is coming. He's going to return. He's going to return in glory. He's going to judge. He's going to set all things right. And so endure all things now. Walk faithfully in all things now because there is a greater day that is coming. And when that day comes, there's going to be a a rising up in your heart of, of joy like you've never known. And the false teachers are saying, Nah, it's a myth. And Peter was saying, oh, my dear brothers and sisters, I love you so much. It is not a myth. I saw it. I got a glimpse. The veil was pulled back. You can believe my testimony. And then he says at the beginning of verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So what's he saying? The Old Testament And in particular, the the prophets that prophesied concerning this coming Messiah who would do these amazing things and, and bring salvation to his people. Peter is saying, I, together with James and John, we saw what the prophets were pointing toward. The prophetic word, we can give, we can bear witness to it. We can we can confirm it based on our eyewitness. We saw it. The word. Peter would say the Old Testament, it's reliable. It's true. And of course, we can go on, and, and I'm not going to this morning. It would take more time than what we have to show this, this, this beautiful chain in which you can see both within Scripture and then also, again, as you can see throughout early church history, how it came to be understood that not just the Old Testament prophets, but the apostolic witness, the entire Bible is true. It's God's very word. It is consequently reliable. The apostles, let's just do this real quick. The apostles were all eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. Paul would say as one abnormally born who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Eyewitnesses, they saw, they heard what Jesus did. They bore testimony to it. Their testimony is preserved for us in God's word. It is consequently reliable. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that it's the, it's the word of the prophets and the word of the apostles that is the very foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which is just a way of referring to the New Testament and the Old Testament. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The testimony of the apostles confirms the truth of God's word, but ultimately it is the Holy Spirit that convinces us concerning the truth and consequently the reliability of God's word. I don't have, I don't have time. I would love to, to pull out all the, all the reasons to believe that scripture is reliable. We could talk about you know, the, the, the standards that are set at a secular level for historical veracity, for determining whether a, a document from antiquity can be trusted as reliable. It has to do with uh, the, the, the time that has passed between what was originally written or when the original author lived and when the earliest manuscripts were found. It also has to do with the number of manuscripts that are found. And if you look at the historical um, or, or the secular record and what uh, is considered valid compared to all other documents compared to the New Testament. I mean, hands down, the New Testament has to be considered even from a secular perspective as historically reliable. 
the date between the original writing and the earliest manuscripts and it is so close. And the sheer number of manuscripts that we possess is so many that there are good reasons to say, you know what, these documents that we have here, speaking of the New Testament in particular, there's reasons to believe that they're real, that what they say is true. And then there's the manner of, of writing, right? I mean, Peter said, you guys are accusing me of, of writing a myth. Well, they wouldn't be the last to accuse the writers of the New Testament to be doing nothing but writing myths. And, and you can look to C.S. Lewis, who was himself a, uh, a, a scholar in medieval literature, who said, you know, I've read myths. This isn't that. The closest thing that the New Testament documents, the Gospels in particular, are to is historical reporting. And so there's all kinds of reasons just in terms of the, the type of writing to say, you know what, this it passes all the historical, you know, literacy tests. It, it's written in a way that can only be best categorized as reporting of historical events. There, there's good reasons to believe, man, this is, this is true. And of course, you might have friends or, or you've read of people who would say, you know what, I, I've, I've seen these things become real, the things that God talks about in this word. I've, I've experienced in my life. There are good reasons in terms of people's testimony to believe that this is true, but ultimately... It will only be the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person to bring the conviction and the persuasion that this is, in fact, God's very word. You either believe what the Bible says or you don't. And if you believe it, it is a miracle of God's grace. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit uses means, so by all means, read the reasons that I've given. You know, think through some of the reasons that I've, that I've given to, to believe why the Scriptures are true. Even more importantly, read the Scriptures. But ultimately, if we come to see that this is God's Word, it's because God has worked in a miraculous and wonderful way. So again, three truths we must remember, the centrality of God's Word, the reliability of God's Word, but third and finally, the authority of God's word. So take a look. Uh, let's jump back to verses 19 and read through 21. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the authority of God's Word. The Bible is authoritative because it is God's Word. It's like Peter saying here, don't just take my word for it. Of course, he's apostle. We can take his word for it. But it's like he's saying to them, don't just take my word for it. This is God's very word. What we've got here is uh, just a little glimpse of that doctrine of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. And I want to encourage you to pick up a book by Kevin DeYoung titled Taking God at His Word. It's a little book, maybe 150 pages. Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. You'll have an opportunity to go, to go you know, a little bit deeper and broader in this topic than what we're able to do here together on a Sunday morning. The key passage, kind of the central text for the inspiration of Scripture is 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Paul writes there, all scripture is breathed out by God 
and pro- is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What Peter is saying here is that the authors of Scripture who actually wrote down those breathed out words of God didn't just fall into a trance. First of all, it wasn't them just kind of making it up on their own. But secondly, it wasn't them either just kind of falling into a trance and just kind of writing. They were carried along. They were led by the Holy Spirit. And so you come to God's Word and you read Paul and you could tell Paul's writing. And you read Peter and you could tell Peter's writing. And you read Luke who wrote Luke and Acts. You read uh, most likely, uh, you know, well, Mark, who wrote Mark. And, and, and you realize they all got their distinct styles. It's not like their personalities disappeared. But the wind in their sails as they wrote was the Spirit of God leading, guiding them along, ensuring that the very words they wrote were God's Word. God's words. So Scripture is authoritative because it's God's word. But with that, now I want to wrap up here. God's word is unchanging because it is God's word. God's word is unchanging. God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no shadow of changing in him. There's no shadow of changing in God's word. We look to things for authority. We look for, to people for authority. We need guidance in our lives. We need help. And what if the counsel, what if the advice, what if the authority is always changing and can't be relied upon? I mean, think about it. I, my history is as a scientist. I used to work as a chemist. Don't hear me knocking science by any stretch of the imagination. However, if I had a nickel for every time I heard, now we know. And then later, well, maybe we don't. Or not quite as much as we thought we did. And I'm, I'm so thankful for science. And if you're a scientist, keep on so that we can know with greater and greater certainty how it is that God has designed this universe and how it all works together. But now we know, well, maybe. Or how about, you know, like health and wellness? Now we know that fat is bad. Wait, now we know that fat is good. Now we know that cardio is good. Wait, now we know that cardio is bad. Wait, now, now we know that cardio is good as long as it's intermittent cardio. We've had parents and other authority figures in our lives that have, have been capricious and their rules have been ever-changing and we've never quite known where we stood. That will never be the case when we come to the Word of God. The author of this word is unchanging. His word is unchanging. The things that he tells us here are ultimately for our good, that we might know us, that we might know him, that we might know the, the goal of history, that we might have hope. And that hope doesn't change because God doesn't change. There's an authority in his word that can be trusted. The Bible is central for remembering and staying on mission. The Bible is reliable. The Bible is God's very word. It is authoritative and it is sure. It is more sure than your experience or your emotions. The things that we tend to look to for guidance, this is a more sure word than that. It's a more sure word than the the wisest counsel you could ever receive from someone else. It's, it's, it's a more sure word than the traditions of man or the traditions of the church. 
Because it's God's word. It's God's word. I don't know if you've ever thought how amazing it is that we have God's word in our own language. I didn't think about that until this past week. Uh, just a few days ago, I, was, I, was, uh, I saw a YouTube video uh, of the Kimyal tribe in West Papua, Indonesia. It was 2010. And the video begins by, by showing what looked to be at least 200 tribes people dancing. They're, they're making their way out to this dirt runway that's kind of cut in between the mountains, and they're singing. Now, they're singing in their own language, but then a narrator comes on and says, they're singing, Jesus loves me. And they're dancing. Why? Well, there's this plane that's starting to come in, this little twin-engine plane, and it's bringing them their first copies of the entire New Testament in the Kimyal language. And they're dancing, and they're singing. They showed an interview of a pastor named Semia. He said this, In the past, only part of God's word was translated into our language, but now we're going to have it from Matthew to Revelation. Our hearts are no longer heavy. A literacy teacher named Senebob said, this year, 2010, is a very important year. It's a year of rejoicing. It's a year of exalting God's name. Before, it wasn't like this, but today, through God's Son, Jesus Christ, God has brought us his word. So today, we are living in the light. When the plane landed, the singing and the dancing was just at a fever pitch. But then when the door to that small plane opened and someone inside the plane held out this shrink-wrapped bundle of Bibles and, and handed it over to these few tribesmen who received it, it was, it was complete silence. You could hear, literally, I heard a baby crying off in the distance on the video. And these men received that package with tears. A pastor that was among those holding the package, a, a pastor by the name of Siyud, prayed in a loud voice for everyone to hear, O oh God, the plan which you had from the beginning regarding your kimyals, the month that you set, the day that you set, has come to pass today. You thought that we should see your word in our language. Today, the day you had chose for this to be fulfilled has come to pass. You have placed your word in our hands, and for this I give you praise. So now there's the men, and, and there's women around, and they're all in tears. And then an older woman says, we have taken God's word, we have accepted it, we've put it into our hearts, and now we're going to give it to you young people who need to also take it and accept it and walk with God as he teaches in this Bible. And then she and the older men kind of carry this package over and they hand it off as they're crying to these younger people that are themselves crying. Then the singing begins and the dancing begins and there's more tears and there's more shouts as they make their way in procession back into the village with multiple shrink-wrapped packages of the New Testament. 
Matthew to Revelation in their own language. Now, I, I almost didn't share that story with you. And the reason why is because the last thing I want that to do is make us feel guilty or make us feel like because we don't feel that way, why even bother picking up our Bibles and reading it at all? Reject both of those notions. Instead, call to mind. Bring to the fore. Remember what an amazing privilege it is to have God's very word open in front of us and take it and read it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, words can't express how grateful we are for your word. And yet at the same time and with the same breath, we confess how much we have resumed upon your word. And so we pray that you would help us to, to just keep reading, to just keep it open, to each and every day take it and read it, to call to mind the things that it says, to trust it because it is your word. It's reliable, it's authoritative, it's true. And would you help us even now to cry out to you and, and call upon your spirit to work powerfully in us so that as we read this, your word, our lives are changed. Because here's the source, here's the fount, here's the living water where we read of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.